Last week we saw in the Bible that anger, short-term anger even, anger can be compatible to a walk with God, to walking with God. And that might sound unusual. We don't usually think of anger and Jesus as two things that usually fit together. More often, we think of things that fit together being things like peanut butter and jelly, right? Oreos and milk. Oh, God bless it. Coffee and rusks. All right, fish and chips, bangers and mash, green mango and pepper sauce, husbands and wives, sons who try to imitate their dads. These are the things we often think of fitting together. These are the things that are compatible, but there are some things that most definitely do not fit together, that are not at all compatible. Oil and water, dogs and cats, two-year-olds and transoceanic flights. Don't fit together. Uh, Me and power tools, just as a vulnerable example. Sons who go behind their father's back and do the very opposite of their father's example. These are things that don't fit together. And the Apostle Paul's words to us this morning are all about compatibility and incompatibility. So let's read together Ephesians 5. 1 through 6, and we'll see that compatibility and incompatibility, things that go together and things that don't go together. Starting here, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let me stop here for just a minute. I have two boys. And when they were younger, they tried to imitate me. All right, when I went to work, they would pretend to go to work. After, after hearing me preach, they would often aspire to preach and even practice preaching on others. When I, when I grilled out on the barbie, right, I would go outside. They, w- they would bring their plastic kitchen outside. When I played basketball, they'd bring along their basketball hoop, their little, little tykes basketball hoop along with them. You get the idea, right? These first two verses describe something wonderfully compatible, well-loved children who've experienced their father's love and and, and his sacrifice on their behalf, trying rightly to imitate their father, imitating God, to, to walk in love like their dad. That's what these first two verses describe. But, and circle this word with me in verse three, but, but. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be even named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. So, Paul says here that speech characterized by filthiness, coarse joking, Uh, talk that's nothing but nonsense, are out of place as beloved children of their Heavenly Father. They are incompatible. You can't have speech like this. You can't just continually talk like this and also 
Express yourself as a beloved child of God. Now, in other places in the Bible, Paul occasionally uses the word adultery. But that's very specific. Adultery covers cheating on one's spouse. Here, Paul uses a different word. He uses the word sexual immorality. It comes from the Greek word porneia, from which we get pornography. No one was going to say it out loud, I know. Paul uses this word to cover all sexual sin outside of God's perfect design of marriage. So when we use our body for pleasure outside of God's design of marriage, that is not proper among the saints. It is incompatible with being God's set-apart ones, his holy ones, his saints. They, don't, they, they can't go together. He says here that a life characterized by covetousness or idolatry, thirsting, longing, chasing after self-centered pursuits before we chase after God first, such have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. When you witness the world around you who, who, who thirst and long and pursue after those things, those, those are for people who don't have a place in the kingdom. That kind of lifestyle is incompatible with a follower of Jesus Christ. And yet Paul is writing that such an incompatible lifestyle characterizes some people who profess to be Christians, some people who go to this church, maybe even to our church. Paul says, then there exists this problem of an incompatible life. How is this possible? How does this happen? How does a person who once confessed Jesus to be the God of their life and their Savior from sin and death live very oppositely now? And not only live in an opposite way, but you don't even feel really bad about it. There's no guilt or shame the way you live. How does this happen? The short answer is is cheap grace. Cheap grace. You might say that's the risk that God takes, offering us free salvation. God gives away grace instead of having us earn it. So because of that, we might, we maybe even tend to focus only on the free price tag, and we forget what it costs God to give it away for free. And we know this from life, right? What happens when someone gives something away in mass for free? What do we immediately think? It must be cheap, right? It's got to be cheap. It's got to be plastic. They got it for a dollar at the dollar store or less, right? They mass ordered it, right? Even those, you know, those, um, those, those giveaway sweepstakes they do at the local gas stations here, right? And they give away $10,000 or $20,000 or $50,000 worth of prizes. And sometimes it's a car. And my immediately thought is, I bet that car is stripped of everything. Probably doesn't have air conditioning, no power steering, no radio. Maybe it doesn't even have tires. It's got to be cheap. It's got to be the cheapest thing possible because someone's giving it away for free. And that's where our mind often goes. But Paul remembers the great cost. He does not forget the cost, the price that God paid to give us grace. He tells us what the motivation is to imitate our dads, to walk in love with him. He says, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's that's the motivation behind why our lives should be different. God paid the ultimate price. I, I fear 
that when we hear the cross, something else comes to mind. What what comes to mind for you when you hear the words, the cross now? For many, the cross, because we've heard it so often, is almost like part of an equation. Like Jesus plus the cross equals I'm in. I, I get eternal life. I get into heaven. I know that I get something after I die. Such that we begin to empty grace of what it costs to God. Right? We start to, we kind of devalue, we, we drain it. Since it becomes empty, what happens then? Well, grace emptied, having lightened its load, not having a cost to track to. That means that, that costly love that God paid doesn't weigh on our hearts or on our minds when we make hard decisions or decisions that should be hard, right? It just doesn't feel like much to us anymore. It literally doesn't weigh on our minds. The image came to mind this week of, of pouring out like a soda can, right? And when you, when you pour out the cost, what it costs God to love us and adopt us and forgive us forever, when you empty out the cost and no longer think about it, what happens? You can just flick that can aside. Hardly weighs anything at all. There's no longer a struggle at least before, when you were close to God, when you, when you first said, I accept Jesus, I believe in Jesus, you struggled with how to use your words, right? But now, it's hardly a decision to talk like the rest of the world because, you know, it's funny. It helps you fit in. It works. It's effective. Before, when you encountered someone of the opposite gender who's not your spouse, a host of questions would come to your mind like, how should I relate to this person? How, how can I relate to this person in a way that shows them God's love, but also respect, that, that helps me remain pure, that doesn't give people the wrong ideas? But maybe now you just go for it. You just kind of flirt away. Maybe you used to feel tension about the nature of your career or saving money for money's sake. And now the only question is how to spend it or how to make more of it. So, how would you know, how would I know, how would I know if cheap grace applies to me? If I've cheapened grace, emptied its cost? The short answer is there's an absence of tension in your life. There's an absence of tension. Sin doesn't bother you as much. There's no longer this internal wrestling that's taking place and with what you say and with what you do. Now, Paul is not saying, I want you to hear this clearly, Paul is not saying if you've messed up before with pornography, if you've lusted too long, if you've hooked up with someone outside of marriage, that you have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's not going to keep you out or get you in. Paul is not saying that anyone who sort of straddles the line and flirts with pursuits other than God He's not saying that person is a son of disobedience for whom the wrath of God is coming, as we read here. Paul is not saying that when you go overboard with a joke or with your humor, all right, he's not saying that you really don't grasp God's grace, all right? I know that I would be in trouble if that was the case almost every day of my life. But it's a struggle. Paul Paul is talking to those who justify their filthy talk and crude joking. He is talking to those of us who dismiss sex before marriage as kind of an old, outdated idea. 
he is talking to those of us who secretly indulge in lust because no one's getting hurt. No one else is getting hurt by this. Or who daily chase after other pursuits harder than they chase after God, while all the while telling themselves, it's okay because God's accepted me. He's going to include me in the end. Paul is talking to those of us who have told ourselves these things. Paul actually warns these churchgoers, right? Let no one deceive you with such talk, with empty words. God forgives you, so it doesn't matter. You're in, so don't worry about it. You're not hurting anyone else, so go for it. You should feel attention when people say those things. You should feel attention when you're tempted to do those things. Friends, there should be wrestling. And I would encourage you to, to, to take heart when there is a struggle. Take heart when there is a struggle, because that means God has renewed your heart. You have the heart of a citizen of the kingdom. And you know that's genuine because there is tension and there is a struggle. Does that make sense? But what if we no longer feel the tension in our lives? What if you no longer sense the uncomfortability, the struggle? If cheap grace applies to you, I want to encourage you right now, not out loud, but in your mind, have the courage to confess it. Even now in your mind, you can admit that even though you've believed, mentally believed in Jesus, you've gone ahead and pretty much lived the life you're going to live anyway. You can admit this because there's good news. There's good news. There's good news that you, even today, can break free from an incompatible life, a life that's incompatible with the God who has saved us, a life that's incompatible with being a loved, beloved child of the King. You can break free from that. How? By, by looking afresh to the costly death of Jesus Christ. There is no other way by, than by looking to the cross. So one way we might interpret this passage, all right, look at it with me again here, is it reads a little bit, it can read a little bit, you can read it like this, like a parent reminding us of his, of his love, followed by listing a bunch of random, naughty things that a child has done. All right? And I, and I can sort of relate to this. As a father who genuinely loves his kids, but is also very demanding, I get this. My children know that I affirm them, I hug them, I gifted them, but God bless them. There are times I walk through that door and I, I ask them about chores, about, about homework, about screen time. Where is this? What's happening with this? And it often feels very random to them, like, God, Dad, we know you love us. You just told us, but now you're just firing off all these things you want to be better. And, and that's wrong, and I understand there's not much rhyme or reason sometimes to what I'm saying. And this, what Paul is saying can feel a bit like that. God loves us. He's shown us this love. And now here's a bunch of random things. No sex outside of marriage. Don't thirst for other things of a me. Also, watch your mouth. And that's one way to think about this passage. But there's another way to think about this passage. Think about it. What do sexual immorality foolish talk, crude joking, and our passions all have in common. What we speak, what we do with our bodies, and what we do with our hearts define the persons that we become, right? The things we say, what we do with this body we've been given, and what we, where we give our hearts, that really kind of defines our life, doesn't it? Defines sort of who we are, where we're going, who we become. Paul is connecting the loving, sacrificial death of Jesus in verse 2 to the whole person. 
that his death matters to the whole person. Jesus gave himself up to not simply save your soul, but to save the whole you. And if you remember nothing else, remember that. Jesus gave himself up to save all of you, your life, all of who you are. So as we behold afresh the costliest price Jesus paid on our behalf, it, it begins to impact our decisions, ultimately to transform the way we live, not just determine our eternal destination, but to change us now. Because of the power of the cross can forge a lasting impact, transformation on the whole person, it can do that. I want to spend the rest of our time this morning beholding the costly price that Jesus paid for us. Because that's what's going to actually impact our decisions. That's going to be what changes us if we found ourselves stuck in a life that's incompatible with being a child of God. Let's look to the cross together. Okay, so number one, I want to look at three things here. Jesus gave up speech to save ours. All right, since, since it matters, our speech matters to how we represent the King of Kings, Jesus gave up speech to save ours. Do you remember how God created the heavens and the earth? What did he do? He spoke them into being. God said, let there be light, and there was light, right? God said, let us make man in his, in our, sorry, in our image. God used speech to create life and create beauty, and those made and his image have always been called to do likewise. We read about this last week in Ephesians 4, verse 29. We read that what comes out of our mouths should build others up. Yet we've used speech to tear down. We've used filthy humor, crude joking to, to get a cheap laugh. We want to forget our troubles, think of nothing. And so we, we speak only a foolish talk and nonsense like our life is an eternal Seinfeld conversation and keep everything superficial. And then you read about Jesus you know what the Gospels spend a lot of time on when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? The suffering and death of Jesus. And in all those chapters and all those verses about the suffering and death from Jesus, you notice who we almost hear nothing from? Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 7, said this about Jesus, predicted this about 700 years earlier. He was oppressed and treated harshly and yet never said a word. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before his, the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Jesus did not call a legion of angels to his aid when he was unjustly treated. Jesus did not speak up to defend himself when those in charge claimed to know better than the one who had created the universe. He didn't defend himself. Jesus didn't use his infinite wisdom to reason with those who shouted, crucify him. He didn't use his infinite wisdom to reason with those who said, why can't he get down and save himself? No, he stayed silent for us. And when you read the Gospels, you can't help but ask, why did Jesus do that? You, when you read the Gospels and Jesus says nothing, you think to yourself, why doesn't he speak up? Listen, friends, the, the, whole, the whole message, the whole sum of Christianity is God substituting himself for us. God putting himself in our place. Jesus taking our place and absorbing what we deserve. And after the things we've said in our lives, after the way we've used our mouths, we deserve to be shut up. We deserve silence. And yet Jesus 
the one who spoke everything into creation in the most important moments of his life, like a lamb, he hardly opened his mouth. He does this not only to save our souls, but to save our speech. How can we think on the gentle Lamb of God who stayed silent as he suffered and did not allow, and not allow the, the impact of his suffering, of his sacrifice, of staying silent to affect how we use our mouths, to affect that next thing that we're about to say? How can we look at the silent Lamb of God and not be changed? So in verse 4, Paul mimics Genesis 1, let there be light, and he says, let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving that comes out of our mouth instead. Remember Jesus. So let us use speech to create, to give life, to build up. Such things are compatible with being a child of God. Such things are compatible with the cost that Jesus paid to save you. Jesus not only stayed silent to give us speech, Jesus also gave up his body to save ours. He gave up his body to save ours. Now, what a gift God gave us giving us bodies, right? We get to enjoy many pleasures and delights that he surrounded us with in this world, to sense these things, touch them and taste them and see them and hear them. And nearly all of us at one point or another another, have used our bodies for for self-gratification. We've lusted after that which is not ours, We've taken images of God meant to bring glory to him and we've used such images for perverse pleasures. Enjoying it, we then dispose of it or even we may have even been disposed ourselves, right? And so what did Jesus do about this? Having, having abused the way, our bodies and the way we use them, Jesus substituted himself in our place. He gave his body to save ours. Isaiah 53 again, verse 5, was said this about Jesus, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Think about this with Jesus. Alone in the silence of the garden, surrounded by friends, too tired to stay up with him, Christ pleads with the Father to find some other way to redeem mankind. And, And he pleads so much that his, that his sweat starts to, to bleed blood. So instead of sweat, he gets blood because a, a physical manifestation of a psychological trauma comes out of Jesus. Following separate cross-examinations, Jesus was first slapped by a religious leader and then soldiers mocking him. After a sleepless night, He's taken to Roman courts where he's stripped naked and scourged. The guards shackle his arms above his head and they tenderize his back with a cat of nine tails. Hooks from their whips rip into his flesh, sinking deep enough to tear every ligament and muscle, ripping away flesh. And he's marred to the point where he, his, his appearance isn't even comprehensible to people anymore. He's dehydrated, exhausted, to top off his torture, a crown of long thorns are pressed into his skulls as soldiers spit on him. Then a hundred-pound cross is laid upon his back for him to carry outside of Jerusalem. But even Jesus, a man in the prime of his life, can't carry it the whole way. 
He's taken outside the city. And on this splintery wood, he's laid with five to seven inch nails pounded into the nerve centers of his feet and of his hands. He's lifted up for all to see. Six hours he's there needing to flex his elbows and push up on his now weakened legs just to breathe. All as he experiences pain in every nerve center and joint in his body. He experienced all of this to save your soul and to save your body. To redeem how we use our bodies today. To remind us that it matters what we do with them. Jesus, he denied his body to help us carry any particular cross that you might bear in life. And I know there are are many when it comes to our bodies. There's some of you that, that have a hard time refraining from any temporary pleasure with your body, giving your body away for any temporary pleasure, the the physical pleasure it brings your body, or just having someone want you to take pleasure in you. Some of you, you indulge in in pornography, taping images of God, people meant to glorify God and use them for perverse pleasure. Some of you, you deal with same-sex attraction. It's a reality in your life. And I'm not going to suggest that any, any of this is easy. Not at all. Not at all. But that's why Jesus paid the price. That's why he died. And the objection for the world, and the objection is, it's my business. It's my body, my choice. How can any of us say that in light of the cross? I can just say that as, as, as a beloved child when we see Jesus there. How can you go on to use the most intimate parts of your body when Jesus gave up his body on your behalf and say, my body, my choice? These are empty words, friends. Empty words that Paul talks about compared to the costly death that Jesus paid with his body. So that kind of thinking that it's my business, I'm not hurting anyone else, It's up to me. God will just forgive me later. No big deal. That is empty words, incompatible with a child of God, compatible with the sons of disobedience that Paul describes. Jesus also gave up his body to save your sex. I said it, and I put a warning in the bulletin for it. All right, so anyone you have kids out here? I try to put a warning. Jesus gave up his body to save your married sex. I put in parentheses married sex. Elsewhere, Paul says this very practically about sex in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 and 4. The husband should not deprive his wife of sexual intimacy, which is her right as a married woman, nor should the wife deprive her husband. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. The husband also gives his authority over his body to his wife. How is this possible in the world we live in? How how does someone trust another person to sort of give their body over to them and absolutely trust them? of all of who they are. Think about it. Married sex is so driven by selfish needs, by lust, by release, by fulfillment. And it's all about me getting mine. But the cross reminds us to use our bodies to bless our spouse. It reminds us that our bodies are no longer our own. Just as Jesus' body was no longer his own, he gave it up. Our bodies are not our own. What I do with my body is meant to bless someone else. It's not for me. Jesus 
not only gave up his body, Jesus gave up satisfaction to forever satisfy us. That's the third thing. Paul says anyone who is covetous, who's not an, uh, as an idolater, is not compatible with being an heir to the king of kings, a child of God. What, what is idolatry? Well, we, we inhabit, friends, a miserable world corrupted by sin. So we are born with hearts that chase after, that thirst after whatever's going to make us happy, whatever's going to quench our thirst, whatever's going to give us some measure of peace in kind of a miserable and wretched world, right? And we go after those things from the moment we're born. We want them. This chasing and thirsting after other pursuits not named Jesus is called idolatry and never is quenched, and God hates it. What does this have to do with the cross of Jesus Christ? On the cross, Jesus gives up, satis- gives up his satisfaction to forever satisfy us. There, there's, a, there's a couple details you may have wondered about when you read the account of Jesus' death. In John chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus, knowing that everything he had done was finished, he said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. It's one of the few things he said on the cross. He said, I thirst. What, what does that mean? What did Jesus mean when he said, I thirst? Did he simply mean he needed a cup of water? I think it was more than that. Mark's gospel helps us twice. Did you know this? Twice Jesus has offered a cup of wine on the cross. The scripture's up here, but Mark 15, 23, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. But the second time, he does take the wine. Mark 15, 36. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on a reed. They gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah, that is God, will come to take him down. So this first mixture of wine and myrrh was given to Jesus to dull the pain, to provide him an escape from reality. It was a powerful mixture, alcohol with myrrh, acted like kind of like a, 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 a numbing drug, and alcohol together was powerful. and would help someone escape from the pain they're experiencing, escape from their reality. And Jesus says no to it. He denies it. The second mixture is a sour wine used by day laborers to quickly quench their thirst and move on with their day. And it's intended to keep Jesus conscious longer, right? They say, wait, give him this. Let's see if God still takes him down from the cross. Jesus accepts this because he's aware. He wants to stay aware of the physical pain and total separation from an all-satisfying father. In other words, he doesn't want to escape the pain. In other words, Jesus refused to escape from pain. He refused to dull it to something other than God. He refused to give himself over to an idol to anything in life that we use to escape, that we use to satisfy us, that we use for pleasure other than the Father himself. So next time you tem- find yourself tempted to escape from what is real and true, to give your heart to something that's never going to satisfy, remember how Jesus thirsted on the cross and denied himself that satisfaction. You know, a, a favorite person of mine in church history, Augustine, St. Augustine, he once prayed, God, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Friends, only, only Jesus is the true bread of life. He is, he is the water that having drank from it, we will never thirst again. At, only at Jesus' right hand, the psalmist says, our pleasures forevermore. Jesus gave up satisfaction on the cross to forever satisfy us. He substituted himself. Won't we remember that when we're tempted 
to chase after other things in this world. This morning, I'm not going to draw lines in the sand. My job this morning is not to, to tell you that it's a bad sign that I, you or I might cheer louder for our sports team than we sing on a Sunday morning and praise to God. I'm not going to tell you or give you the definitive word that it's permissible at times for Christians to use curse words, to occasionally say, bleep, whatever that bleep might be. I'm not going to make fine distinctions between what really constitutes sex, what really defines sex. And, and I'm not going to ask, you know, if what you're doing really is just a loophole to get around that before marriage. What I can say, what I must say, is the cost, the costly debt of Jesus Christ must affect our decision must affect that nexus. He bled and died to affect our decisions in this life. What I do with my words, what I do with my body, my time and attention, too often these decisions, friends, aren't hard enough. They're not hard enough. Costly grace is designed to to make us think twice. To make us think twice before we jump in, before we say what we're just going to blurt it out, before we jump into that relationship, before we give ourselves over. Jesus' death was made to make us think twice and ultimately transform all of us who walk in love with him who calls us his beloved children. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you this morning. We thank you, Jesus, because you pay the ultimate price. Thank you for not responding when you should have or could have. Thank you for giving your body. Thank you for not reaching after that numbing agent that would have helped you escape the greatest pain a person had ever realized for us. And Jesus, we thank you that for any of us who have sinned, that we have healing, that we have forgiveness from all the shame and all the guilt. We thank you for forgiving our past guilt. We thank you for forgiving yourself, yourself up to save our soul for eternity. Well, Jesus, we also thank you for giving yourself up to save our present selves, all of who we are in this present place and time, that, that grace was costly and transform and should matter to the way we live. Jesus, help us keep the cross, your cross, in the forefront of our minds every time we're tempted to use our speech in a wrong way to give up our body in a way that wouldn't please you. Or any time we want to give our hearts over to that which would never satisfy, we remember you, Jesus, in the cross. We're thankful, and we give thanksgiving instead. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.